Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chirot. Episode 3. Civilization Before Civilization. I want to start today's episode by talking about the concept of ancient. The ancient world has been a fixture of human thought for millennia. There has been this idea that for much of human existence, our ancestors lived simple, short lives, hunting wild animals, collecting whatever edible plants were in their vicinity, and migrating for food. Then a whole new phenomenon occurred. Out of the vast deserts of Egypt, the pyramids rose high enough to split the heavens. Massive cities were built with palaces, temples, and centers for law and justice. Irrigation was used for the first time as humans were no longer helpless recipients of nature's power, but could in turn shape nature according to their designs. From the shores of the Nile came writing, and with it the development of a time scale, which meant humans were mastering abstract concepts as they mastered nature. Ages were reckoned with the passing of the pharaohs, and the world became the domain of human beings, where before humans were little more than animals, helpless in the face of nature. This worldview was first believed by the classical Greeks, who looked to Egypt as the founders of civilization. For millennia, this view was carried over, so that when Napoleon invaded Egypt, he remarked that 40 centuries looked down upon us to his men as they approached the pyramids in admiration for the first humans to develop advanced societies. This Greek narrative was modified, though not challenged, by the Judeo-Christian narrative which views the beginning of civilization in Mesopotamia rather than Egypt. According to the Bible, the Garden of Eden was located between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, placing it somewhere in modern-day Iraq. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for eating the forbidden fruit, their descendants spread out across Mesopotamia, founding powerful cities such as the ancient city of Ur, where Abraham was born. It was in Mesopotamia 
that the ancient Sumerian city-states emerged and the first known use of writing and the wheel occurred. Thus, Christians have looked to ancient Mesopotamia as the birthplace of advanced societies, and to this day, if you take a Western civ course in America, Western civilization begins in Egypt and Mesopotamia before passing like a torch to Greece, Rome, Western Europe, and finally the United States and Canada. For thousands of years, this view that complex, monument-producing societies emerged in Egypt and Mesopotamia and spread across the world shaped Western understanding of their place in history. For Westerners, the very idea of history, as they understood it, began in the Middle East. If you were secular, then everything before that was just unintelligent cave people. If you were an orthodox religious person, then there was almost nothing before that, just a week for God to create the heavens and the earth, and however long it took Adam to name all the animals, before the first woman came along and ruined everything by eating that damned fruit. However, this narrative has begun to crack under the weight of a relatively new academic discipline, archaeology. While historians primarily use written documents to detail past events, archaeologists can use any material evidence to develop an understanding of the past. Over the last 300 years, archaeology has developed to such an extent that we can look back farther into our own past than was ever possible using traditional historical methods. The result is that archaeologists have uncovered complex cultures that produce giant monuments that are far older than ancient. The oldest known stone structures on Earth are in Turkey at Katal Hayuk and Gobekli Tepe. These monuments date back to the 10th millennium BC. Just imagine that. This city of numerous stone family houses, temple complexes, and government offices is around 7,000 years older than the Egyptian pyramids. The gap in time between Gobekli Tepe's creation and the pyramids is a greater gap than between the pyramids and today. Younger, though still pre-ancient sites, include the original Tower of Jericho, which may have dated to the 9th millennium BCE. Yet, while the oldest stone cities may have been in the Middle East, soon Europe would have megalithic structures as well. Of all the pre-ancient structures, France boasts the oldest in all of mainland Europe. These massive earth and stone structures date back to 4,800 BCE, more than 2,000 years before the Egyptian pyramids were built. Before we dive into the megalithic structures of France, we must first pick up where we left off last week. Last week we ended the Paleolithic, or Old Stone Age, 
and entered into the Mesolithic, the Middle Stone Age, which in France occurred around 5,500 BCE. The Mesolithic came about when humans first developed agriculture. In my opinion, the development of agriculture is certainly the greatest scientific breakthrough in human history and caused a greater shift in human society and behavior than the internet, fossil fuels, electricity, the printing press, gunpowder, the wheel, or writing. For millions of years, humans and their ancestors were a part of nature. Even when humans stood atop the food web, they were still a part of the natural environmental rhythms. They migrated alongside bison and elk herds. They gathered wild fruits and berries. And they mostly sheltered in caves or in simple huts not much more complex than beaver dams, bird's nest, or other animal constructions. The agricultural revolution separated human beings from nature. Now, instead of being part of the natural migratory and food-gathering patterns, humans could grow their own food, manipulating their surroundings to fit their lifestyle. With the development of pottery at roughly the same time, Humans could store harvests, giving communities longer-lasting and more reliable food supplies. Because humans based their diet on agricultural products, mainly wheat, barley, lentils, and chickpeas, they became rooted in a singular location. In addition to these food products, early French inhabitants grew flax, which was used in clothing, and humans' non-migratory status further led to the domestication of animals, including goats, sheep, pigs, and cattle. Thus, technical innovation was followed by social innovation. In this period, there was job specialization, as members of a community were hunters, farmers, pastoralists, potters, woodcutters, warriors, tribal leaders, and spiritual leaders. While early French inhabitants probably held multiple jobs, they developed specialized skills. I doubt anyone was a hunter, farmer, shepherd, potter, lumberjack, chief, shaman, warrior, though that's what my business cards say. Nowhere was the advanced division of labor more evident than in the development of polished flint axes. Polished flint axes were one of the most important new tools of this period and were used to cut down trees. The process to make them involved many people with particular skills and shows just how complex these societies had become since they developed larger populations. First, the flint had to be mined, which involved entire communities using bones to dig into the earth, sometimes dozens of meters to access the raw flint. Then, this flint had to be turned into a rough rectangle using a hammerstone. After that, the tools had to be shaped and polished. All this work wouldn't have been possible in the Paleolithic era, 
but with larger populations, greater technical knowledge, the division of labor, and stored food meant that more advanced tasks could be accomplished. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. More people also meant more religious development, and it is in this time that ritual burials with symbolic items, either jewelry or animal parts, were buried alongside the deceased. Interestingly, far less art has survived in the Mesolithic period as compared to the Paleolithic because of the transition from cave paintings to individual ornamentation, including painted pebbles. Finally, being rooted in one place meant that square houses made of cut trees replaced simple huts made of sticks and moss. Particularly important buildings, such as temples and burial sites, were made of stone and were often remarkably elaborate. And it is here that we arrive at France's first great monuments, the megaliths. The word megalith literally means great stone. For today's podcast, we're going to be focusing on three particular kinds of megaliths. Archaeologists and anthropologists have many subdivisions, but... For purposes of simplicity, we'll stick to three general forms. The first megalithic archetype that we'll be looking at is the cairn, which is a large stack of stones used to mark a burial place or important religious site. Cairns are found all across Europe and are among the first stone monuments of early Europeans as they are the simplest to make of the megalithic types. The next archetype are the dolmens, which look like large stone houses made when a large flat rock is placed on a series of boulders. Archaeologists are divided on whether dolmens were used as tombs or had some other function, and these remain a mystery. The third type of French megalith and the first of the earth and ground variety is the passage tomb, otherwise known as a barrow. 
passage tombs began as graves, which were then flanked by large stones and then covered by earth. From afar, these looked like mounds of turf, with an opening via a short stone hallway. Some larger passage tombs contain numerous passages and sub-passages under a massive mound. The oldest megaliths in all of mainland Europe is at Barnanay, near the northwestern tip of France. According to Brittany's tourism website, a delightful little page, it is Europe's largest mausoleum, an impressive feat given that it was made nearly 7,000 years ago. Another site calls it the prehistoric Parthenon. Barnanay is 246 feet, or roughly 75 meters, long, and 82 feet, or roughly 25 meters, at its widest. The amount of work required to build this is truly breathtaking, as the mound itself is estimated to weigh over 12,000 tons. This massive construction was made over hundreds of years of painstaking effort as early French inhabitants piled stones to make passage-shaped constructions then covered those with earth. Eleven chambers were made, and from a distance, the mound must have looked like a small hill with openings to the ritually buried dead. Inside these tombs are many carved symbols, which may have been pictograms and perhaps even an early attempt at recorded language, however crude. Barnanay is currently open to the public, so if you're ever in Brittany and want to see the oldest building in mainland Europe, I suggest doing so. Another incredible pre-ancient megalith is the Necropolis of Boujon, located in west-central France. I don't know what all of you listeners like, but just the word necropolis gets me interested. The necropolis of Boujon is actually five barrows, each with a single entry passage, as opposed to Barnanay, which is incredibly large that has enormous passages attached to it. Like Barnanay, first construction began around 4800 BCE and continued over hundreds of years. Hundreds of skeletons were found at the site alongside weapons, ornaments, clothing, and other items. Were these items placed with the dead as part of some ritual? Did these early French inhabitants believe that the deceased would take their personal effects with them into the afterlife, like the ancient Egyptians did? Or was this merely a way to honor the deceased and maintain a sense of deference to their ancestors and the social order they oversaw? We may never know though we do know that these people believed that recognition of death was extremely important. Perhaps the treatment of dead bodies 
was a way of ensuring control of living members of the community. If one was good in life, they could be buried in a great tomb with many possessions, bringing honor to themselves and their family. Probably those descendants of those that were worthy of burial in the barrows could claim moral authority within their tribe and become its elders, whereas those whose ancestors didn't earn a place in the barrows were relegated to the edges of society. Furthermore, if these peoples created religions which claimed that good behavior on earth meant happiness in the afterlife, then burial mounds were powerful living symbols of why one must always commit to the greater good of the community. Thus, it is possible that the spiritual and political leaders of these early societies used the dead to control the living. So, why did these complex, monument-producing cultures die out? There are two major possibilities. One is that environmental change disrupted these societies. The other is that the Indo-European invasions caused the mass societal collapse of old Europe. Let's start with the environmental theory. The Mesolithic period was a period of chaos for humans. A warming planet meant that glaciers in all but the northernmost parts of Europe and in the mountains melted. Doggerland, that area which connected France and England and stretched east of England into the North Sea, sank under the rising sea levels, pushing its populations into England and France. But all of this environmental change is not necessarily bad news. A warming climate meant that France's tundra was disappearing and new animals and plants emerged as France became more hospitable to life. So, while old settlements around the megaliths may have become less fertile due to overuse, more fertile regions developed. Just like the cave-dwelling pueblos in the 14th century Colorado, it's possible that early Europeans left perfectly good settlements because they suspected that better living areas were just over the next hill. Now to the second main theory of the Indo-European invasion causing old Europe's collapse. Beginning around the mid-4th millennium BCE, the Indo-European peoples migrated from Eastern Europe into Central and Western Europe in force. Given that indigenous European languages and cultures have gone extinct, the Indo-Europeans almost certainly came as violent, brutal conquerors assimilating, decimating, and perhaps outright destroying the cultures of old Europe over a 2,000-year period. Whether these cultures collapsed before the Indo-European arrival or after is something we may never know. Next week, 
we will discuss the Indo-European migrations, as these warrior peoples conquered Europe, replacing the old cultures with something wholly new. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to visit our page and either make a one-time donation or become a Patreon, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.